Welcome to the OA Light a Candle meeting podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Terrell. Hi, I'm Terrell. I'm a compulsive overeater. Hi, Terrell. I feel like I was an announcement on a Tonight Show or something. (laughs) (laughs) Let's see, I'll qualify. Uh, My top weight is somewhere around 325 pounds, and I have 31 years of abstinence. So I've been doing this too for a long time. And I always say that I'm an opinionated old-timer and just put it right out there so that we get that out of the way. Yeah, let's see. Why am I a compulsive overeater? Hmm. Because I like what food did to me. Bottom line. I mean, it was it was not an issue of like, oh, I like I like the flavor of chocolate. It wasn't an issue of, of, oh, you know, well, it just I didn't have good eating habits. My mother told me that you know we eat vegetables at meals. We we have carbohydrate. We have a vegetable. We have protein. I learned that in my household. Um, what I didn't learn was how to deal with life and cope with feelings. Um, and I learned at age four that a fudge sickle made life better. <laughs> And I pursued that feeling that I got from that fudge sickle at age four to the gates of insanity and death, pretty much. You know, where I was risking my life, risking my my sanity, to try and find that very elusive, that very elusive bite. You know, it's like, we all can get, we get that bite. You know, when you take that first bite and you go, that warm glow comes over, uh, over us when we get that bite. And then, uh, or if you're an under-eater, when you get that that glow that comes from not eating, you know, we all have that certain fix that we're trying to make this feeling, this what I'm going through right now, not exist. And I will take food, food did that to me at a very early age. Um, why am I still in ovaries and ours? Um, is because I still have that switch that says that warm glow. Matter of fact, one of my favorite pamphlets is, uh, before you take that first compulsive bite, it talks about, don't think about that warm glow that you get from that first bite. Think about what happens after. Because that's what happened with me. Um, I, that warm bite turned onto me, and it made my life hell. Um, what was it like? <clears throat> I came from this alcoholic family, so I kind of guess, you know, I kind of jokingly say if you had my mother, you'd eat too. You know? Um, my mother is a touch, just touch crazy. Um, she has a, the addictive personality. My, the, the, the ism is rampant in my family. Um, my mother went to AA, never heard one amends from her, which seems kind of surprising that she wouldn't make amends to a child. Um, there was, you know, I could say, I could be victimized by that, and I could sit and talk about all the horrible things about my childhood. But, oh, my childhood, my childhood. But the bottom line is I'm 55 years old. I've been absent over 31 years, so basically over half my life I've been absent. So if I want to use that childhood to beat myself up and keep me down, that's exactly what will happen is I'll use it to beat myself up and keep myself down and not thrive and grow to be a a flourishing man. So I've had to let go of that, which, believe me, was not fun. I, I didn't really want to let go of it because... One of the things I'm kind of noted for is, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And do you understand I was right? 
that as a child that was a horrible childhood and it was not right and that all things that happened to me was not right. But so now, now I've decided. So now I've come out to, uh, that I'm right. But it doesn't make me feel any better. It's that momentary, like, well, I'm right. See, and that momentary right is just like that warm glow when I take that first bite. That warm glow, like, like see, I got it, and then I got to get it again, and I got to get it again, and I got to get it again. Because for some reason, it's a very elusive, that first bite. You know when we cross over that line and that switch clicks? And we know that that little bite is just going to lead to a binge. But we're still willing to take the bite. Because we're willing to take the binge. Because we're willing to stop the feeling at any cost. We're willing to just cover our feelings and emotions at any cost. Because I don't want to feel. I have yet to meet a compulsive reader who likes to feel. Who goes, oh, that was a lovely emotion. Yes, I'm going to sit and have my emotions and feel this. It's more like, what can I do? What can I eat? What can I get away from this feeling? Because we just, we get uncomfortable. I feel, I crawl, explain it as like, I feel like I'm crawling out of my skin. You know, where I feel like my skin's crawling. I just want to, want to explode out. That my body is like exploding out from the inside. Let's see. So I had this, so I had this dysfunctional family and I um, discovered food at an early age. I mean, that's my high school picture. Like I said, um, I don't really have any fat pictures of me as an adult because there aren't none. Not because I didn't take pictures. It's just because I wasn't fat as an adult. That's the grace of the program. So I, this, I was picked on. I was Terrell the Barrel. Um, I was, I mean, basically my life consisted of I went to school, came home, cleaned the house, thinking the house was clean. My alcoholic parents would stop drinking and stop fighting. <laughs> have dinner, push them out of the kitchen so that I could clean up the garbage, basically turn on the garbage disposal and stuff the food in my mouth, thinking of the garbage disposal. And my mother always said, it looks better on the garbage disposal than on you. But, you know, I guess maybe she knew. But, um, and so I, you know, and I, I always talk jokingly about some of the things I learned about as a kid was um, if you want something done right, do it yourself. Don't tell the neighbors everything you know. You know, don't be blabbing what's going on. Because if what's going on in the family, you don't talk about. So it was really... So those are the lessons I learned as a child. And those lessons did not serve me well as an adult. But those were the lessons I learned. I had to come into program to learn how to live life in a more appropriate manner. So I, I was fat and miserable as a kid. Then I went to my first meeting when I was 17 years old. And... At my first meeting, this man got up and said he had lost 100 pounds. And by hearing that, it gave me something I never had before. Hope. Now, I'm a 17-year-old boy. Hopeless. I mean, hopeless. I went to my first meeting. Like One of the things that got me to my first meeting was I was graduating from high school, and I felt like I just wasted the last four years of high school by being fat. I was going to waste the next four years of college by being fat, and I was going to waste the rest of my life by being fat. And I believe there are normal people who can be 30 pounds overweight and not be a compulsive overeater, who just have bad eating habits, lead a sedentary life, all this stuff. They can be overweight, but they don't have that click. They don't have, when I eat too much, I want to eat more. They don't have, when I eat too much, the shame and the self-hatred 
that washes over me that makes me want to hate myself and want to kill myself. They just get full. <laughs> That's it. They just get full. You know, and they talk about they need to go on a diet one of these days, you know. But they don't have that hatred. And that's what distinguishes, I think, a compulsive overeater from a heavy eater. It's what the food does to us on the inside. And that's why it doesn't make a difference whether you're 3 pounds overweight, 300 pounds overweight, or 5 pounds underweight, or 50 pounds underweight. It's what it did to us when we ate, or when we didn't eat, that makes us just want to kill ourselves. Because suicide was an option. It really was an option. I mean, if, you, if you're fat and miserable, a suicide's an option. So I went to my first meeting at 17, and I heard this man lose 100 pounds. It gave me hope. Hope that I didn't have to live my life like I was living at the rest. That I didn't just live this. Now, I mean, 17-year-old boy. I mean, I, mean, do you, I mean, you think of a 17-year-old boy, and his life is ahead of him. But I knew I had no life that I was destined for hell. That it was just misery was all that's in my future. So, you offered me hope. You also offered me some steps, but they were for my sick alcoholic parents. You offered me a food plan. It was on a gray sheet of paper. And I took that gray sheet of paper and I worked that food plan. And I lost about 125 pounds in about five months. Now, that was with a 17-year-old boy metabolism. I was working on a shipping loading dock <laughs> during the summer. You know, I, would, I stopped binging, and I went to two eggs and an orange for breakfast. You know, and some cut vet, raw vegetables and, you know, two ounces of hard cheese, you know. for Actually, I doubled my protein because I was a 17-year-old boy. You know, I lost the weight. But the thing that, that our literature, I mean, our program is very clear about is that if I do not have a moral psychic change, if I don't change my behavior, if I don't alter my thinking, then as a compulsive reader, I can lose weight as many times as I want, but I will go back to the food. Because the food is the solution. You know, I heard the speaker this morning talk, as long as food was an option, food's an option. You know? And so it was, I stopped eating. I ate healthy for seven months. I went to meetings once a week, whether I needed or not, for moral support, for encouragement. But I didn't need Overeaters Anonymous like I thought I did. And so I, on Thanksgiving Day, 1973, I um, trotted out my new body. Um, and it was, I mean, it was literally, the year before I was wearing basic, what I call Garanimals, which is blue plaid, blue uh, corduroy pants, brown plaid, brown corduroy pants, green plaid, green corduroy pants. And we bought them at the Big Fellow store, you know. I mean, it's kind of like when you walk in at 16 into the Big Fellow store, you know, you're not tall, you know. Um, and so I, um, so I, I mean, so I had on these platform shoes, bell-bottom pants, plaid bell-bottom pants, um, a leisure jacket, and a wool sweater. And I was hot. <laughs> it was the first time in my life that I was looked like a normal person. And I started giving thanks on that Thanksgiving day. And I got back up to about 275 pounds. About 250 pounds. And I went to college and I kept a journal. And one side was the date. The other side was my weight. Because that determined what type of day it was. 
Uh, not only do I have the disease of, disease of the brain that's, that's so concerned about what I'm eating and my food content, my disease also tells me that my, my feeling about myself today will be, de- be determined by a number on a scale. There's a number on a scale that will make me feel fine or will beat myself up with. And I, always jo- I jokingly say, but it really is true, my goal weight is 149 pounds. And the reason why it's 149 pounds is because when you get on the doctor scale, the big weight goes on 100. The small weight can go out to 49. But I, it was a, when I was putting that big weight on 150, Lord, that makes me fat. Mm-hmm. When I put the big weight on 200, which is usually what I, and now I weigh around 200 pounds, you know, am I still fat? No. What I've learned is that there is not a magic number that is going to make me perfect. That's going to make all the world go away and the heavens will part. Angels will sing and I'm going to be living this wonderful life because I reach a certain number. What I've found is that basically there's a, um, I get to be more comfortable in my own body with less weight. Now, what it is is if I'm abstinent, I'm not using excess food to coat the feelings. If I'm abstinent, I'm not gaining weight because I'm basically eating what my body requires, not what I want. Because there's a difference. Maybe I don't realize it, but there is a difference in what my body needs and what I want. You know, and I love comfort food, you know, but it doesn't, I don't get much comfort from it. Anyway, um, so, I, so what happened, they bring me back to program the second time around. I should also talk about the donut diet because it's like part of my story. Um, it's that I, um, when I, I, I I went away to school and I discovered the wonderful world of fasting. Because you folks taught me it's not the hundredth bite that puts the weight on, it's the first. And I became, learned that I became safe from food if I didn't take the first bite all day long. Do you know what? I mean, I mean to me, it really is safe from food. Because at 17, I learned that I'm a compulsive overeater. At 17, I let the, let, hit the last house on the block. Now, ain't that a kick? Last house on the block at 17. So I knew at 18, 19, 20, I knew I had, that I was a compulsive overeater. I knew I had no business eating sugar. I knew all that stuff. But I would stuff my face going, I, I can lose weight. I lost 125 pounds. I can lose weight any time as I'm going up on, my, on the scale. I also I learned, um, so I discovered the wonderful world of fasting. And basically how that turned into my donut diet is that if you don't eat anything all day long, except maybe a salad, and eat nine or ten donuts on, on the way home from a discotheque, you can literally maintain your weight at 160 pounds. And that's what I did. I maintained my weight at 160 pounds, which is 50 pounds, 40, 50 pounds less than I weigh now, on the donut diet. And uh, if you're new, there was a newcomer that came up to me after I spoke one day and said, well, if the donut diet worked, why'd you stop it? <laughs> and, I, and I want to be clear the reason why I stopped it. I stopped it because I was insane. I would be standing at a crowded discotheque. It was the 70s. And it was, I was standing at a crowded discotheque in the corner. And there was hundreds of people in this crowded dark discotheque. And I'd be standing in the corner afraid to move my little finger. Because I knew that someone walked up to me and go, what are you doing here, fat boy? Look at you. You're too fat. You're too ugly. I just saw the way you moved your finger. It was the most disgusting way you moved your little finger. Go home. And that's how I lived my life. Based on the donut diet. 160 pounds. There is no magic number. 
You know, I'll charge my opinion at timer. There is no magic food plan. You know, I hear it all the time. If I can just get the right food plan, then everything's going to be hunky-dory. No. A food plan is what you eat. Now, in absence, it requires honesty that says, when I pick up sugar, I have a really hard time stopping, and I really want more, and I'm hungry, and there's no point of satiation with sugar until I start shaking because I've had so much sugar. With bread, I really can explain how I can eat half a loaf. Because I was starting out with just two pieces of toast. And somehow, the loaf disappears. I don't have that control. So I'm, I have honesty about that. Now, maybe I can eat two slices of bread and maybe call it a, a day and then get on the phone with my sponsor and talk about, like, oh, I'm just feeling crazy and I just want some more food and it wasn't enough and that's just not enough food. But that's a lot of mental energy. That's a lot of mental energy to keep the fork down. That's why I find that zero is easier than one. It's a lot easier than for my foods. Once again, I don't, I've sponsored people who eat sugar. I sponsor this guy who calls his food into me every day. He eats pasta. I mean, and I look at him and go, and I go, seriously, you're talking about a rough day and you get to eat pasta. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, but he's an alcoholic and I drink alcohol. He says, okay, but you get a drink. You know? It's like we all have our own, we all have our own things. That's where we don't, I can't sit here and go like, oh, here's a gray sheet of paper, work this gray sheet of paper, and everything's going to be fine. Because it doesn't work that way. That's not what this program's about. So what happened to get me back to program the second time is I was told by a doctor that if I did not stop eating sugar, I'd be blind within a year. And I then proceeded to put on 30 pounds in six weeks. And it was on, I was binging my way through Europe. And I remember as I was bending my way through Europe, I can still see. And when things start to go gray, that's when I will stop. Now, I always want to remember that that is where I'm willing to go for one more bite of chocolate. That my eyesight's not that important. That chocolate's more important than my eyesight. That when I'm in that, when I have that fix, when I need to feed the addiction, which is when I take that first bite, because our literature is very clear. We have the obsessive mind that makes me think about the food all day long. But if I don't pick up the first bite, the physical addiction does not kick in. But if I pick up the first bite, then I have, I start, have to feed the addiction. It has nothing to do with hunger. It has to do with filling a hole in my soul with food. And there's not enough food to fill the hole in my soul because that's not what's wrong with me. It's not because I'm hungry and lack nutrition. It's because there's a hole in my soul that I think I've found a substitute to fill it. And you can try as long as you want, and you'll never fill that hole in your soul with a cookie. Never. Never. At least that's what our program says. Now, that's one thing about, you know, about, this, about this meeting. This is an OA meeting. Now, if talking about your inner child works for you, Talk about it outside the rooms. We talk about the 12 steps in here. We have, the common, we have a common disease. We have a common solution. We have found the 12 steps and the 8 tools. And living by the 12 traditions is a way out. Now, we have all find many ways to get help for outside issues. But the commonalities that we all have is we all look at the steps and go, that's the answer. 
dead is the way out of hell. Because if we could find it, like, I mean, if you were here in the 80s, you would know about all those teddy bears being brought to meetings. You know, and talking about inner children, about our inner child. You know, bless their hearts. But that, that did not stick. Because the commonality is that we have the 12 steps. That's what works for us, each and every one in this room. So, so there I, I was 30 pounds heavier, and, you know, going, I can still see. I can still see. And I came back to Overeaters Anonymous, and uh, it was uh, 1978, and I was broken. One more time, food beat me up. I, w- I had a boyfriend when I left. I was too embarrassed to show up at his door after being gone for six weeks because I just didn't know how to explain. Oh, yeah, the 30 pounds, good food in Europe. It just didn't work. This, you know, there's also the thing that, which I had to make amends for later. Um, there's also what I know about what I say up here, and I always talk about this, that, that um, this gal came up to me after I spoke once and said, you know, Carol, I really want to thank you. You, you helped me so much. I kept, when I went to Europe, and I kept saying, if Terrell can stay absent in Europe, I can stay absent in Europe. <laughs> if Terrell can stay absent in Europe, I can stay absent in Europe. And I didn't have the heart to tell her that that's not my story. <laughs> but you know what? She stayed absent. So I can say whatever I want up here. You're going to hear whatever you want. You know? I mean, that's, what, that's how it comes down to. It's like, literally, you hear what you want to hear. And so... Um, but since then, I have gone to Europe, and I have abstained in Europe, and it's possible to be anywhere in the world and abstain. Let's see. So um, I came to I came to Overeaters Anonymous. My I had all these reasons why I couldn't be in OA before I came back the second time. I was male that, because there was basically all housewives when I was there in 1973. Mm-hmm. I, I was young. Um, I was gay. Um, I couldn't do that. That gray sheet paper again because I have within a, you know, the fact of West Hollywood gay man's lifestyle. I can't do that. And at my first meeting I, that I came back, I went to, it was a moderate mailer. It was a male. And he was relatively young. So that put all those excuses. Then I found out they had six, seven meetings a week at the Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center. There went that excuse. It's amazing what, what excuses I can have to keep me from sanity and serenity. Because they seem like better ideas. They seem like better Just like a cookie seems like a better ideal than writing an inventory. So I... I went to six, seven meetings a week at the Lesbian, Gay and Lesbian Community Service Center. I got a sponsor. I was being sponsored. Uh, I, mean, I mean, I was sponsoring people. I became an active member. I had a spiritual experience. And the spiritual experience was I was walking out of Roxbury Park. Um, and I parked like on Olympic. And it was from the clubhouse. And it was like about two, three months abstinent. And this, um, I was at a step study, 12 step. I was thinking like, what has this got to do with me? I'm like, no. I'm new here. And uh, as I was walking back to my car for the meeting, I heard this small, still voice inside of me that said, Terrell, you're going to be all right. I love you, and you have as much right to be here as that tree. And that is my spiritual experience, because see, up to that point, I felt like I was breathing your air. I felt like any second, y'all could just come along and snatch the breath away from me and take my existence and that's how I live my life every day, knowing that any one of you 
could snatch away my entire breath. And when I heard that, that small, still voice, a sense of peace, and went like, Do you know how hard it is to fight every day, to be afraid that every day that you wake up, every day that you have to defend every single movement that you do, that you have to constantly be on guard, that you might have done something wrong, because any second now, one of you can come and destroy me. Which basically made me enslaved to everyone on the planet. Because you had more power than me because of what you thought, said, did. Look, that look. And so, anyway, um, so I was, about, I was about three or four months abstinent. And I um, um, had lost the weight I gained in Europe. I was back down to about 165 pounds. Um, and I went to my sponsor and I said, you know, Paul, I'm sick and tired. Goes, goes and full of fat-ass people. I'm sick and tired of being told what I can and cannot do when I can and cannot eat. On a Saturday night, I went out to be dancing with the boys in Palm Springs. I do not be sitting in some damn meeting in Cedar Sinai Hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe y'all don't understand, but, you know, I'm a 23-year-old gay man, and I do not want to be sitting at some OA meeting. I think I want to be out being hips looking cool. You know, I wanted, it was not what OA was not going to help me get to where I wanted to go. And my sponsor said some magic words to me. He said, Terrell, remember, you're leaving us. We're not leaving you. If you ever want to come back, we'll be here. Now, we didn't know anything about abandonment issues back then. This was the 70s. And he said, <laughs> he said, and I said, well, thank you for sharing. Because I was done with you folks. I didn't need you folks. I don't want to be a part of you folks. I do not want to be a compulsive reader. I do not want to be a member of Overs Anonymous. To this day, I'm not thrilled about it. <laughs> no. I mean, and I've been, I've been, you know, chair of the LA Intergroup. You know, I've been like, I'm, right now I'm the R2, I'm the treasurer for the Region 2 convention, which you all go to in Jan- and next year here in LA. But I don't want to be an OA member. And so what happened was I, I um, actually I talked about this once from the podium, but how I didn't want to be a member of, I didn't know if I was a member of Overs Anonymous. I really, I mean, yeah, I used to weigh 300 pounds, but you know, I mean, everyone maybe had that in their history. Um, and I, I, this man told me to go home and read chapter three, more about compulsive overeating. And that first sentence got me. No one likes to admit that he's mentally and bodily different from his fellows. And I have been different all my life. You saw my picture. I was the fat kid. I was the gay kid. Before I was knew I was gay, I was the clumsy clutch kid who couldn't screw a screwdriver in. I was the, you know, I was different. I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted to be part of the group, but not your group. But I just <laughs> wanted to be part of the group. And when I read that, it was like, oh, right. One more time, I'm different, but by declaring how different I am, I get to be more like the rest of everybody else on the planet. So, what happened? I left my sponsor's house, saying, okay, God, you and me, we're going to go eat what I want, we're going to go live my life to hell with Oprah's and Mars, let's just go have some fun. You know, I got the food thing down, I'm good now, I'm good, you and me, God, we're just going to go have, you know, I spent... Like, you know, driving back to my house, talking about talking to God about how wonderful it's going to be and how he's going to do all this stuff for me. And I've learned that whenever I start talking like that, I'm in trouble. <laughs> because I'm not listening. Once I start telling all that stuff that God's got to do, 
boy, I'm in trouble. So what happened was on January 5th, it was about two weeks later, January 5th, 1979, I broke my absence on two pieces of toast. That's my last pinch. You've heard me say this before, but it's true. If I knew it was going to be my last one, I would have done better. (laughs) Because what happens is, so I had the two pieces of toast, but then I thought about the donut stand. And I was going to go get my donuts. And those donut stands are filled with love. Maybe not in your world, but in my world, they are pink. And there's this warm glow of love coming out of that donut stand. And there's old ladies behind the counters, and they're sweet to me. And there's something nirvana about donut stands. And when I start thinking about donut stands like that, then I know I'm in trouble. So, so I got very scared. Because you folks said the door will always swing out. But you never know if the door will swing back in. And I knew one more time I'd stepped outside. And one more time I'd broken it. And I started praying. I said, God, please help me. I cannot do it one more time. I cannot do it one more time. Please help me. And I went to bed. And on January 6, 1979, I woke up. And I've been absent ever since. And the reason why I'm still absent... It's because I cannot do it one more time. I just cannot do it one more time. And it has nothing to do with weight. Because I maintain my weight at 160 pounds on the donut diet. It has to do with the clarity, the sanity, the serenity, the self-acceptance, the love that this program promises me and guarantees me. And it doesn't say it's going to happen overnight. If you're like me, my first year, I was just coming out of a fog. I didn't take my first, I didn't want to take my first year candle because my absence wasn't good enough. And someone who I loved very much said, do you, you know Big Bob? And Big Bob was this guy who used to be probably about six, six, probably four hundred something pounds, used to drive around eating buckets of Kentucky Fried Chicken as a snack. And he had a hard time staying abstinent. And, he, and she said, do you think Big Bob would love to have your absence? And I said, I'm sure he would love to have my absence. And she said, this is the absence you're going to throw away because it's not good enough. And it was like, right, got it. Second year, didn't want to take my candle because, see, I was in this very sick relationship. Um, I cut my hand trying to take the knife away from my lover because he was, was going to slash the sofa because I didn't let him use the credit card one more time. But that was in my second year of abstinence. So I was healthy and sane and serene, right? Yeah. I'll t- tell you right now, those of you that are in your first year of abstinence, I don't care how long you've been programmed, first year of abstinence, if you want a relationship, go for it. I loved high drama too. I did. I loved high drama. But you're going to be shorting yourself for what you really can have. And that's one thing I've learned is that I don't have to short myself anymore. That I can fly in this program. My fifth year candle, God, I, I took it and I said, you know, I got five years. There ain't no way in hell I can get another five years. Ain't no way in hell. I know five years. I can't go another five years without doing it. I don't care what you people say. Of course, you people are saying one day at a time, not five years at a time. So I learned. I have been through amazing things. Oh, I have gone out dancing in Palm Springs with the boys. Lots of dancing and so forth. So, oh, but I did that while abstinent. Because see, when I'm on, when I'm not abstinent, I try to have self-esteem, and what happens is I hate myself more. And no matter how much I try to develop self-esteem, 
I seem to hate myself more. Which is raising another one of those opinions that I have, and so I clarify this opinion, is that I strongly believe that in this program we do not learn how to love ourselves. That you do not learn how to love yourself before you start loving others. In this program, I believe it teaches us to love others first. And as we start loving others and we see the love in their eyes as, as they accept it as a compulsive reader, from looking at their eyes and how they look at me, I start to love myself. But there is no way I can love myself without seeing how you love me first. Because I know how horrible I am. I know. That's the reason I couldn't write a fourth step. I had a hard time with the fourth step because I knew that once I started taking that one strain, I would, you would lock me up in an insane asylum. I knew that all I'd do is just start pulling that one little string and you'd put me in an insane asylum because my life was so horrible. It took me three years to write a four-step. I got this new sponsor. He said, have you written an inventory? I said, no. He said, well, you have it to me by the end of the week. I said, no, you don't understand. I've been trying to write a four-step for three years. He says, no, you don't understand. You have your inventory to me by the end of the week. And, he, and I did. So if you're sitting on there fighting with your inventory, get her done. Just get her done. It shouldn't take longer than a week. Because... I mean, I mean, and don't, and because I had this expectation of what the perfect inventory is going to look like, didn't happen that way. <laughs> but I had to, and I thought that my sponsor would come over in this really wonderful setting. Now he fell, she fell asleep, and afterwards, <laughs> afterwards it talks about the fifth step. You go home, and you get the get the book, and you get quiet and think, have you done everything? My sponsor said, do you want to go eat? <laughs> I, uh, we went to go have lunch, and he said, uh, do you eat a lot? I'm thinking, well, I'm a volume eater. I mean, I weigh 300 pounds. He said, well, then, or, I said, well, yeah. He says, then get the chicken and the salad bar. That was my fifth step. <laughs> One thing that I've learned, there is no, there's not like this whole thing like, okay, I guess, you know, we're, as compulsors, we want to be perfect, and we want to do it perfectly, and we want to do this. But we've got this whole thing called step 10. Continue to take personal inventory. And when wrong, promptly admitted it. Which means they know you're not perfect. Because it says you will be wrong again. You're going to be wrong one more time. Maybe two more times. Maybe three more times. If you write a four step and you don't get it all out, don't worry, baby. You stay absent. You'll come up. More stuff will come up. You can get it done. Just get it done. And if you're sitting there, been working on it for three, six months, oh my God, bless your heart. Because all you've done is turned up that shit. You've turned it all up. It's here, turning right here, and you're dealing with it, but you haven't given away. You haven't fifth it, sixth, and seventh it. Bless your heart. It's hard to stay absent when you're doing that. Our goal in this program is to become joyous, happy, and free. Nowhere does it say anywhere in our literature that you're going to get married. So you can hang that one up. That is not a gift. It is not a gift about you get a job. God is not like the slot machine. You put in three prayers and a meditation and do pass, you know, do a service commitment, and next thing you know, you get a wonderful mate and you get a wonderful job and you get this great car. That's not what this program is about. This program says you can't, you do not look to the outside to make it happy. It's an inside job. And the inside job means it doesn't make interest what's going on. Because I've been unemployed, I've been broke, I've had money, I've had jobs, I've got my own business, I've had cars, new, old, oh, 31 years. I've had it all. I've gone through deaths, I've gone through illnesses, I've gone through, I've done it all. I found out I was HIV positive. You know? 
when it was a death sentence, when I didn't know if I was going to live five days, or five weeks, or five years, unabstained. And one thing that they, that I used to say, you know, if I had a, a week to live, I'd go binge. You know what I'm saying? I would do it. I would go get my German chocolate cake. If you can have a week to live, what I, what I now have the clarity of mind to go, is if I got a week to live, I am going to abstain every second because I want to be there for the, every full moment of life. Uh, uh, let's see, I might as well talk a little bit about God. Um, I'm an atheist. Um, I haven't always been an atheist, but just recent development in my life. I have no problem with the 12 steps and working and talking about God because when I talk about God, I talk about void of self, that, my, that I can either turn my will and life over the care of fear, anger, hostility, resentment, or I can turn my will and life over the care of love, understanding, compassion, peace, serenity, joy. And those are my choices. So all those things, we'll just use the word God because it's very convenient in this room. The other one I call ego. And God is void of self. This is full of self. What can you do for me? What's wrong with you? Why can't you love me like I need to be loved? I need more. This is all about, okay, whatever is going on with your life, it bless you. So, I don't have an issue with that. Now, I used to tell my sponsees, you need to get a God that you can find, that you can turn to when you don't have that God. But I won't try and convince you what your God should look like, and you don't convince me what my God looks like. That's how this program works. Because it works for us to say, okay, I trust and believe and have faith that it will get better if I get my pride, my ego, myself out of the way. If I remove fear from the situation. Because that is going to make me make decisions that are based upon protection and defense and self. And that takes me right back to where I was. Where I had to wake up every morning when I was binging, thinking, how can I defend every one of my actions? Because every one of my actions needs defending. And I don't live my life based upon that now. That is the joy of this program. This program has given me inner peace. Now, I'm a long-term abstinence thumper. I believe in day in and day out of abstinence. That, yes, you can come into program and get, you can get, find fellowship. You can find that you've lost some weight. And then you go back out and binge over certain things because your mother said something. Then you can come back in and do this. And that works, and you will get find some modicum of comfort and relief. But maybe you're shortchanging yourself. Why do that? Why shortchange yourself? Now, I don't judge someone who goes back out and eats because I know the disease. The disease is strong. The disease will take me out so quick. It wants to kill me. By, by coming here to a meeting, and trusting God will take me to a better place. I find peace, happiness, joy, and freedom. And it's avail- available to everyone in this room. Because no one gave me anything special when I walked in. I was a sick mofo. And if you would have saw me <laughs> when I came in, you would have known. He was one sick one that I would sit in the corner and cry. So don't think that you're sicker than me. Because you're not. 